Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw. And we have another COVID update for you today. I'm going to try to give you some updates on kind of what we're doing here at Hopkins that may be helpful for some folks out there. And I also want to highlight a fantastic one-page summary that some of our ICU fellows have put together in conjunction with our faculty. Um, and I want to give a huge shout-out to them. So Sergio Navarrete, Akbar Harikar, and Stamatis Baronos uh, are three of our just amazing ICU fellows here at Hopkins, and they have put this together. So I'm going to post this in the show notes. It's a great one-page summary. So I will go over some of it uh, now, and then if you want to check it out or use it yourself, disseminate it, you can pick that up in the show notes. Uh, it's a really nice one-page. The first page is kind of all the information. The second page are the references. However, before we start, I want to take this opportunity to read a remarkable and inspiring note that was sent from one of the anesthesiology residents at Massachusetts General Hospital to his co-residents right after his COVID testing came back as negative. This is a resident with some military background, and he sent this. And I want to read it here to you because I just found it to be really inspiring and a great encapsulation of what I think the attitude we have seen so amazingly shown by so many and what we really need from everyone in terms of coming together and doing what's right and what's best to get us through this crisis. So let me read that to you. He writes, Friends, I report to you COVID negative, but seasoned by four days of solitary confinement. These are scary and uncertain times. With the suspicion of a tidal wave about to land on us, we all feel a sense of fear for our loved ones and ourselves. While none of us have ever seen anything like this, I've served on teams through some dangerous times, and I assure you the ultimate metric of our success will depend on our attitude and our teamwork. We took oaths of a higher calling, and only a small group of people on the planet is as qualified as we are to do good right now. Even few other physicians have the skills we possess to save lives of the critically ill and protect those who are not. It won't be long that we're looking back on COVID as a brief chapter of our lives, so we have a unique opportunity now to write this piece of history the way it should be written. I share with you lessons learned, mostly from errors of my past. Don't compare yourself to others. It doesn't matter who appears to be doing more or less. Just give your best and be proud of your own role. Don't worry about fairness, but rather be proud in your fatigue of the important work you're doing and see the importance of being a follower and team player. Find small victories and notice the people who contributed to them. Forgive yourselves and those above, below, around us who will make mistakes as we all learn how to make the best of an impossible scenario. Lastly, please hold me accountable to the same. I'm proud to serve with you. You all make me a better person and physician. We will prevail. So I thought that was just such an inspiring note, and I wanted to share it with all of you. 
thank you to that resident who wrote it and for being willing to share it with all of our listeners. All right, let's jump back in and get to that sheet that is such a good one-page overview of our uh, approach right now to this pandemic. However, before I get to that sheet, just some changes that we've made, and I, again, want to put this all in context and say that we are constantly changing. Protocols are changing day to day for us, as I'm sure they are for you. So by the time you hear this, things may already be out of date. So please check with your local hospital protocols um, and don't make any decisions based just on what you hear here. But this may be a good opportunity to provoke discussion about changes you might want to make. Uh, Our thoughts are, of course, with our colleagues in New York, Seattle, uh, and in other countries uh, that continue to really struggle with this. Um, Italy, of course, uh, is is still really um, suffering, and among others. So really want uh, to make sure we are giving any support we can to our colleagues as we prepare for a surge that is likely to come uh, in more areas as well. So some of the changes that we've made, one, we have until relatively recently, we were still intubating asymptomatic regular OR patients uh, who were low suspicion for COVID. We were still intubating them with just a surgical mask. We've changed that. And uh, basically the assumption is that there's such uh, a a wide array of community spread that uh, patients, although asymptomatic, may still be able to spread uh, virus if they're infected. We don't really know how, how common that is, but it's possible. And we just need to protect our workers, our healthcare workforce, as much as possible, especially during high-risk procedures like intubation, which is an aerosolizing procedure. And so we now are having people wear N95s with a face shield over it um, for all intubations. And if someone can't fit an N95 due to facial hair or something else, then they wear a PAPR. Now, this is, we're still trying to conserve these resources. And so we're not doing an individual N95 for each patient. We are having the provider wear the N95 with a face shield over it and then clean it with those purple disinfectant wipes and then reuse it as long as it's not visibly soiled or or falling apart in any way. Um, I want to say we've had incredible incredibly generous donations from the community. Uh, People who have found N95s they had stashed in their shed for construction work, Uh, even contracting and construction companies that have some stashes of these for their work that are uh, donating them to hospitals. It's really heartwarming to see people coming together to try to provide increased protection uh, for our healthcare workers who are really on the front lines of this. So that's one thing we've done. And then for Uh, All codes and rapid responses, regardless of whether the patient prior to having a rapid response uh, team called or prior to having a code called, even if they had no suspicion for COVID before, we are assuming anyone who has an RRT or a code, we're going to treat as if they are a potential COVID patient, which means if they need to be intubated, they're going to be done. That's going to be done with full uh, intubation COVID intubation gear, which is, as I discussed with Dr. Pusta Voitau, the last uh, episode we did, that's going to include uh, double gown, triple glove, uh, a papper, um, and and everyone in the room is going to have to have that protection. So that's another change we've made. We've also changed our CPR uh, procedure so that we're doing chest compressions only and no breaths until a a secure endotracheal tube is in for patients who are in cardiac arrest. 
and we have established an airway team separate from what we used to have. So the prior to this, we had what was called a central intensivist, which was one of the anesthesia critical care faculty who would respond to codes and intubations along with one of the residents to do the intubation if an intubation was needed. The medicine team would run those codes. Now the medicine team has come off of those because they have such high volume they need to manage on the floors and in the MICU. And so the central intensivist is now running the codes and we have a separate anesthesiologist who is not an intensivist who is doing the intubation. So that has both freed up the central intensivist to run the codes. And of course, if there are multiple codes, then they can split that duty. And that has allowed some more flexibility in the system. We also anticipate that we may need to increase the number, have more than one airway attending, uh, depending on how many people are needing to be intubated on a given day. Of course, with all the high PPE precautions in terms of the PAPRs, the double gowning, the triple gloving, um, that takes quite a while. And so it isn't easy to do multiple intubations uh, in a short period of time. So that's another change that we've made. We've anticipated the possibility of a shortage of people who can manage ICU ventilators, and that hasn't happened yet, but we think it may, and obviously that will be a crucial skill if we don't have enough respiratory therapists to do that or if the respiratory therapists um, end up quarantined or sick. And so we are training some of our CRNAs and some of our anesthesia residents to be able to do that. We are hoping that that won't come to pass, but if it does, we'll have that cohort of folks who can manage those ventilators. There have been some discussions about whether if things got very dire as a last resort, we might consider putting multiple patients on one ventilator. Uh, Josh Farkas of palmcrit.org has done a really nice summary of the data for that and how to go about it. So I would highly recommend checking that out if you are in a position where you are running out of ventilators. That's something to think about. Obviously not ideal for a lot of reasons. Uh, but if you had to choose between no ventilator or splitting a ventilator, you'd probably try splitting it. It is doable. You obviously need to try to match up uh, patients in terms of similar BMIs, similar ideal body weights, and uh, similar lung compliance. Of course, that can change. The compliance can, and so it may not uh, work uh, for long, but it's something to consider trying. All right. So let's go through this fantastic sheet that um, our fellows put together. As I said, I will post this. You can access it. You can use it. It even has some uh, links to the um, COVID-19 videos that have been made here in terms of donning and doffing uh, and things like that. So uh, just some epidemiology, uh, which is a nice little box they start with here. So I think we've made this clear in prior episodes, but the virus itself is not COVID. The virus is SARS-CoV-2. It is an enveloped RNA coronavirus, similar but not the same as the virus SARS-CoV-1 that caused the SARS uh, outbreak in 2003. It is a uh, virus that causes a disease called COVID-19. So that's the terminology. Uh, So the transmission, this was a thought to have begun with transmission from bats and maybe another animal called pangolins to human, and now is clearly a human-to-human transmission. Uh, There are infectious secretions, so certainly respiratory droplets and sputum, maybe blood as well, though it seems maybe not to be in the blood quite as much. And the 
process is it's thought to attach to the angiotensin converting enzyme type 2, ACE2 receptor, um, which is present in a variety of areas, but specifically in this case, it's present on type 2 pneumocytes in the lung. And because of the attack on those type 2 pneumocytes, you get a reduction in the production of surfactant, which can cause an ARDS uh, profile. And so that's thought to be how this is working. Now, interestingly, there has been some talk about whether people on angiotensin Uh, converting enzyme or angiotensin receptor blocking drugs might be either protected because maybe it stops the virus from uh, attacking those type 2 pneumocytes or maybe they're worse off because the fact that they have a chronic level of those drugs might mean they produce more uh, ACE2 receptors and therefore might actually be more at risk. It's unclear from my understanding, uh, and so I don't think anyone is actively treating patients with ACE inhibitors. Um, if anything, I think maybe um, those patients might do worse, though, again, it's a little unclear because of other comorbidities. So the R0 or the R sub zero, which means the number of new cases that can come from a single person who's infected. That number you hear tossed around a lot. Now, remember, it varies based on things like isolation, right? If everyone was 100% isolated and never left their house, uh, then the R0 would be zero. But with the current situation, uh, the R0 is thought to be somewhere between about 2.2 and 3.6. So that's high, and we want that to be lower. And again, that's where all these uh, you know, social distancing and isolation measures come in. The case fatality rate, so the overall case fatality rate, so the number of deaths um, is the numerator, the number of confirmed infections is the denominator, is thought to be about 4.5%. The case fatality rate of folks over 80 is as high as 15%. And once you are critically ill, the case fatality ratio uh, or rate is significantly higher, as you can imagine, of 49%. Now, you know, these numbers are probably not perfect. And in Italy, for example, as we discussed with the folks there that we talked with a couple episodes ago, part of the problem is you get a high fatality rate, not because these people have to die, but because you, if you don't have adequate ways to treat them, if you have run out of ICU beds or ventilators, then someone who might not have otherwise died might die. So that that will inflate your mortality, even though that isn't necessarily due just to the virus. It's due to a lack of resources. All right. So let's talk about uh, diagnosis. So signs and symptoms, common. Fever, above 99.1. About 94% of people will have at least that low-grade fever. About 79% of people have a cough. Excess sputum production in about 23%, so a lot less. Myalgias in about 15%. Uh, and then diarrhea is a lot lower, 5%. Nausea and vomiting, about 4%. Uh, silent hypoxemia in a small proportion. And then uh, a little unclear what proportion is losing their sense of smell. That's definitely been described, and we've got some folks here who have tested positive who definitely have that symptom as well. So these are all things to keep in mind, but really overwhelmingly that fever is uh, a huge part of this. Not everybody, but a high percent. The typical time course, so we think that onset of symptoms after exposure is about 4 to 14 days. Pretty early on when you start showing symptoms, you'll have that fever and cough, and then the dyspnea tends to come after about a week. 
So you want to be very careful, especially, you know, I get nervous with some of our healthcare providers who are positive and are kind of managing themselves at home, um, which is fine, but want to be very careful that the hypoxemia, if it comes on slowly, can go relatively unnoticed or it can be easy to make an excuse and not kind of pay as much attention to it. So be very careful and err on the side of caution and getting care if you need it, obviously in a safe way so as not to expose others. All right. So the lab abnormalities that have been seen, so uh, lymphocytopenia, mild leukopenia, mild thrombocytopenia, increased D-dimer, increased serum ferritin, increased troponin has been seen, increased LDH, and increased creatinine. So those are some kind of lab profiles you may see. Now, we have developed a COVID-19 PCR assay. It requires a nasopharyngeal swab. It was developed here at Hopkins specifically, and we get our results in about 24 hours. We're ramping up our ability to do that. Obviously, that's our own test, and every place is going to have uh, their own, whether that's sending them to the state labs or they or whether your your hospital has developed their own as we have. Obviously, testing is really important. We had an interesting journal club discussion looking at some uh, data on the uh, where. Uh, the swabs uh, are most often positive. It turns out blood uh, very seldom, at least in the population that this st- uh, study looked at. It's uh, most effective. Your test is going to have the highest positive predictive value looking at a BAL sample. Obviously, that's a little harder to do. Sputum is better than a nasopharyngeal swab. So if you have an intubated patient, you can just do deep suctioning in a closed system, uh, avoiding any aerosolization of virus and get some deep suction sputum, which is probably a better way than just a nasal swab to do it. Our general kind of drive-by testing is still the nasopharyngeal swab, but a little concern there about how many of those might be false negatives. Um, So we need to keep that in mind. In terms of the microbiology, we want to remember that people can get a secondary infection that's actually looking like it's pretty common especially in people who are very sick and don't survive. So you want to rule out bacterial infection if you're concerned. Don't just land on COVID and then not do what you would normally do in terms of, for example, sending bacterial and fungal cultures. If you have that suspicion, if in another time you would have sent those cultures, still send them. In terms of the viral panel that we're sending, we're testing for influenza A and B, RSV, and COVID-19. So at first there was some thought that maybe we would just if a, do the flu first, and then if a patient was flu positive, not do COVID, we have moved away from that because it looks like there can be co-infection. In terms of imaging, chest x-ray on an AP view is not great. Sensitivity of only 59%. Uh, bilateral pulmonary infiltrates, about 75% of people will have those, and a consolidation in about 59%. It's fairly uncommon to see pleural effusions, masses, cavitation, lymphadenopathy. So not impossible, but that's a little less common. A CT scan without contrast, we really are trying to avoid because it's resource intensive, obviously removes both staff from the ICU and takes a potentially positive patient out of the ICU to other areas of the hospital. Uh, And it can be difficult to limit exposure and it may not really drastically change management. If you do get a CT, about 71% will have ground glass opacities typically peripheral and basal, and about 59% will have a consolidation seen on CT. The progression is from an initial presentation of ground glass opacities before symptom onset and then progresses to consolidation over the course of two to three weeks. 
Lung ultrasound is a great option here. It correlates well with the CT scan. It's rapid, it's safe, it's low cost, and it can be performed by a bedside clinician if you know what you're doing. It can be done instead of a chest X-ray for ET tube placement, so you can actually get a a view of trying to rule out uh, esophageal intubation. Um, instead of having to use a stethoscope, which then may be contaminated, and certainly instead of having to get a chest X-ray. And we've moved to doing that as much as possible. Uh, You can also assess for lung movement, obviously. You can look for consolidation with a lung ultrasound. And so rather than having to have a radiology tech wheel a big machine in there, you who are already going in to do an exam can go in with an ultrasound. Obviously, you need to wipe down that ultrasound pretty well, but it's a smaller machine than the big uh, X-rays. In the uh, early phase with a mild infection on ultrasound, you're going to see focal beelines. That's the main feature. And some pleural thickening. As you progress to a more critical stage, you'll see multiple beelines and even consolidation of those lines. And then in the recovery phase, you'll see the appearance of A lines. Again, pleural effusions are uncommon. All right, let's talk about treatment. So again, first and foremost is staying safe. We have to keep our healthcare providers safe so that they can continue to care for these patients. And so always, always wearing PPE, uh, either a PAPR or an N95 with a face shield. For an aerosolizing procedure, we have really moved to preferring PAPRs, even for folks who can wear an N95. Um, And so for non-aerosolizing procedures uh, or non-aerosolizing time in the room, we want to both limit it, but also uh, for that, an N95 is okay. Ideally, you really want to have an observer to see and help people with the donning and doffing of PPE so that it doesn't, uh, they don't take that uh, potential viral particles with them out of there or, or contaminate other parts of their body. We want to cluster care and so really have uh, units that are dedicated. We've moved now our entire MICU, for example, is all negative pressure. It's in in what we call bio mode, and that entire unit is just for COVID patients. So we're admitting other non-COVID critically ill patients, even if they're medicine patients, to the surgical ICUs and keeping the MICU for COVID patients. We've also opened up another couple of floors on other areas that are not typically ICUs, but that are being transitioned into negative pressure bio mode ICU uh, areas for these patients. So you want to try to keep that, obviously, keep those patients clustered so that you avoid uh, contamination of other patients. Again, really be careful and proactive, like I talked about with Dr. Pustavoital, with your intubations. If a patient is not doing well long before they max out on support, you want to move to getting them intubated so it's not a crash intubation. In terms of medications, very limited data on antiviral therapy. Um, There's really conflicting data on steroids, but it's thought to uh, probably be best to avoid them unless they have another indication for steroids like COPD, um, severe septic shock, et cetera. So uh, there's also, I, I believe the FDA today just approved the use of convalescent serum for um, trying to treat severe uh, patients who have severe COVID. And that means someone who has had the disease is now recovered, trying to harness their antibodies. It's not an easy process and requires plasmapheresis, obviously, but there may be some some promise there. And so that is uh, now allowed by the FDA and is being used, I think, in some areas to attempt to do that. Uh, there's some interesting talk about whether a small volume of um, convalescent serum might be able to help 
uh, prophylax for healthcare workers against getting the disease, but uh, we haven't seen much data on that yet. Obviously, if you have an eye infectious disease service, an ID service, get them involved early um, and uh, kind of think through this as best you can with the team that you have of how best to treat these patients. But for right now, the best bet we have is the supportive care. You want to not overflow them with fluid. In fact, you want to be very fluid restrictive. Don't give that initial 30 ml per kilo bolus that uh, the surviving sepsis guidelines recommend. Remember, these patients often haven't eaten for a while, maybe even a week or two, because they haven't been feeling well or have been dyspneic. And so it's very important to start feeding early. Um, put When you do put a breathing tube in, put an OG tube in with it. Be on the lookout for renal insufficiency and renal failure. That seems to be relatively common in patients who get very ill from this. Of course, we want to have conservative fluid management, which may worsen the renal insufficiency, but we really need to protect those lungs. Early vasopressors if needed, and then, you know, be very cautious, as I said, with those fluids. We talked about the early feeding. And then if they do develop significant renal insufficiency or renal failure, they obviously will potentially need continuous venovenous hemodialysis or hemofiltration. If that's unavailable because you just don't have enough circuits, then you can consider doing intermittent hemodialysis with vasopressors to support the pressure. So folks probably know that the reason we, uh, with critically ill patients, especially hypotensive patients, we don't do intermittent hemodialysis because it will really potentially lower their pressure acutely when that high volume is taken off in a short period of time, whereas continuous dialysis, you just take a small amount of fluid off at a time or even no fluid and just dialyze. But uh, if you can't do it, then you've got to do intermittent dialysis, and that can be supported with vasopressors as needed. All right, going back to respiratory care. So obviously you want the patients to have a surgical mask on, even if providers are going in there, just to limit the potential for them to cough or breathe out virus. We've talked before about high-flow nasal cannula, so our protocol is we start them on it if they can't, if, if regular nasal cannula is not sufficient. But once we get to 40 liters of flow and 50% oxygen, that's where we pull the trigger for intubation because we don't want to wait, as I said before. We are very uh, early to move to proning. It seems to be very helpful in these patients. We avoid bronchoscopy, if at all possible, because of the high risk of aerosolization. And then we have taken the tack with ECMO of going on a case-by-case basis. Now, that may be different in other places, uh, but we decide each case individually as to whether someone might need ECMO. We do intermittent monitoring with bedside ultrasound to look at lungs and the heart, because remember, there are reports of cardiomyopathy developing in these patients, and we want to catch that early if we can. If we do have a nasal cannula or a high-flow nasal cannula, we put a mask on top of that. And if not, we still have a mask on the patients. We go with traditional ARDS protocols, so six cc's per kilo based on predicted body weight of um, inspiratory volume. We try to keep the plateau pressures less than 30 and driving pressures less than 14. If the P to F ratio is less than 150, that's where we're going to prone them for at least 18 to 24 hours a day. Obviously, making sure that it's helpful. If it's not, then we wouldn't do that. Uh, and then we consider neuromuscular blockade, consider inhaled nitric oxide. We have not done and have moved away from doing um, Velitri, which we used to use, but that uh, requires uh, aerosolization, and so we're not doing that. And then, as usual, we allow permissive hypercapnia as long as the pH is above 7.2. 
for intubation itself, we went over this pretty definitively with Dr. Pustovoitau in the last episode, but obviously this is an aerosolizing procedure. So we try not to do bag valve ventilation. We try to do an RSI and go straight to intubation. Now, if you can't intubate and the patient is desatting, rather than let them die, you obviously would try to bag them. But if you can avoid it at all possible, that would be great. Uh, we have pressors ready. We have norepinephrine ready, sedation. We have a ventilator ready to attach immediately so that once the tube's in, we go straight to the ventilator and not to a bag. And then again, confirming the placement. So if we have entitled CO2, we will use that. Uh, if not, a CO2 indicator is okay. Personally, I like the idea of using the ultrasound, especially if you have it in there anyway. Uh, to make sure you're not in the esophagus. And then in terms of making sure you're not too deep, I actually really like the technique, I use this just every time I intubate, of taking the pilot balloon and pinching that halfway down and holding it and then bouncing with your finger right at the sternal notch. And if you can feel the bouncing in the pilot balloon, that means you're bouncing right on the cuff. And if you're bouncing on the cuff at the sternal notch, that is not too deep. That means you are not right main stemmed. And so that's a good, easy way that doesn't require a chest X-ray or any other equipment at all. Now, it won't help you about whether you're in the esophagus or not. So you need another way, whether that's ultrasound or end tidal CO2, to be able to confirm that. In order to facilitate trying to avoid bag ventilation, you want to pre-oxygenate really well. This is another reason to do this early. So you have time, give them a non-rebreather, uh, mask for 100% or a bag valve mask without bagging, but just let them breathe in that 100% oxygen for as long as you can. We recommend up to five minutes to really pre-oxygenate as well as possible so that you ideally don't have to bag mask. Uh, as I said before, for these procedures, we're doing a PAPR and PPE, including three sets of gloves and two gowns. In the room, we're trying to limit the people in the room. So we have one nurse, one intubator, and maybe one assistant if we need it, plus a respiratory therapist. We're going straight to video laryngoscopy just to try to really speed this up as much as possible. Um, and then we are recommending using either a 7 or a 7.5 ET tube with subglottic suctioning in a closed system. Um, and then obviously if needed, you have your Yankauer suction as you always would. Uh, you have oral airways in case you do get into that situation where you have to, ma uh, to mask ventilate to save a life. Have an LMA as a rescue device just as we always would. And if you have a bougie as another rescue device, that's always good. Um, and then we, if you do have to mask ventilate, you want to use a uh, filter, a viral filter that if you have them, if it's at all possible, that goes right uh, on the mask itself before the AMBU bag so that you are any exhaled air from the patient is going through that filter. Again, trying to avoid that mask ventilation, but if you have to do it, um, put that filter on there. And then the other thing is being very careful to avoid, if at all possible, any circuit disconnects. But if you do have to disconnect the circuit for any reason, you have to turn off the ventilator so that it isn't spewing virus out. And then you have to clamp the ET tube itself so that it isn't the patient doesn't cough or breathe out into the room. So that's really important to remember. Remember, there is some emerging concern for viral cardiomyopathy. Um, there's been some reports of ventricular arrhythmias and even asystole. Uh, and this may occur as the lungs are beginning to recover. So you want to be very careful to follow that in your patients. Again, another reason to do frequent bedside ultrasound to look at heart function. Uh, we already talked about uh, being very careful not to bag mask during a code. 
uh, if you can avoid it. If you do see someone who is developing that cardiomyopathy, obviously getting an early cardiology consult, get those folks involved for help with management, uh, and then consider inotropic support if needed. In terms of discharge, so based on recommendations from China, we're talking about looking for no fever for at least three days, substantial improvement in lung function on imaging studies, clinical remission of respiratory symptoms, and then two throat swab samples that are negative for the virus obtained at least 24 hours apart. So again, this could change anytime, but for right now, that's the criteria we're using to discharge these patients. All right. So most of that was, uh, again, going through this sheet that I'm going to post so you have access to it. Uh, I want to give a huge, huge shout-out one more time to our fellows. Um, they really have done an amazing job. So Sergio, Akbar, and Stamatis, thank you for all the work you've done on this. Again, the credit for this, if it's helpful to people, really goes to them. All right, we will post this. I hope it's useful. Thank you so much. That's it for today. If you are out there caring for patients and you have things to share, ideas, things you're doing, uh, please go to the website, acrac.com. You can leave them there. People can learn from what you have to say as well. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Wolpaw, and the podcast is at ACRAC Podcast. Uh, of course, we also have a Facebook page. You're welcome to join. If you're a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes. You can leave a comment and a rating, and that's going to help others find the show, including this information on COVID. And if you are interested in supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C. You can become a patron of the show and make a donation that is effective for each episode. If you prefer to just make a one-time donation, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and are already patrons. It makes a huge difference. Huge thank you to Kimia Kashkuli, our intern, who's done amazing work with a lot of the stuff, including the... Uh, social media stuff. Thank you. Thank you to Dr. Brian Park and to April Liu, who are making great um, now time-stamped um, outlines for some of the episodes. So I, I encourage you to take a look at that as they start popping up. Uh, one was just done for the uh, initial um, COVID episode that we did. And it's really nice to be able to see where each thing starts in terms of timing. And a big thank you, of course, to Dr. Dennis Quo, who is the composer of our original ACRAC music. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That's it for today. I hope everyone out there is staying healthy and safe. There is just amazing dedication and work being shown by our residents, and I'm sure residents everywhere, as well as faculty, nurses. Everybody's really coming together and just showing incredible work ethic, um, coming together to address this crisis. And I couldn't be more grateful. I'm sure everyone else feels that way. Let's make sure we support each other. And, of course, to everyone out there, let's maintain our social isolation, social distancing, both at work and at home, so we can stop the spread of this thing as soon as possible. All right. Thank you so much for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.